I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Ben Soule, who is a foreign policy professional focused on malign influence, Russia and Eurasian affairs, and democratic development. Ben, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we jump in, I just wanted to quickly mention, you know, that we're going to be speaking analytically a bit today and, and want to say that we're also emotionally invested in the conflict and want to recognize the human impact of, of what Russia's doing in Ukraine and, and also what it has done in, in Syria and Chechnya and to the Russian people themselves. Absolutely. And just as a reminder, we are all speaking in our personal capacities and none of our opinions are that of our employers. Ben, how did you get interested in Russia in the first place and information warfare specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. Really, the thing that kind of piqued my interest in information warfare is reading history and and recognizing that whenever there's like great technological transformations, it usually spurs on some paradigm shifts in the international system. And having, you know, the the, the fact that the internet kind of became popularized in the 90s and, and early 2000s, I felt like that this was a time that we're we're living through a paradigm shift. And I feel like one of the ways or, or one of the main ways that that's happening in international relations is in the, the rise of information warfare. Can you describe a little bit how information warfare has contributed to what we're watching unfold in Ukraine right now? To kind of paint this picture, if you guys don't mind, I want to kind of take a step back and talk a little bit about the history of the evolution of kind of this this mindset, which kind of starts during the Cold War. You know, during the Cold War, you know, obviously the, the Soviet Union was, was a communist state. And because of that, they had actually a, a very different worldview, a very different perspective on the nature of conflict and the nature of war. In the U.S. and in the West, uh, we often think about war as like a binary, um, either we're at war or we're not at war. In the Soviet Union, that wasn't the way that they thought about conflict. The way that they thought about conflict was really based on on Marxism, on Karl Marx, and dialectical materialism. So the notion of dialectical materialism, essentially that states are in a constant state of conflict between the social classes within those societies. So states are constantly in conflict between the bourgeoisie and and the proletariat. And for the Soviet Union, they saw conflict as being waged at kind of a sub-state level, and that one of the roles of the Soviet Union was to support the proletariat in this struggle. And so they've always had kind of a worldview that that looks at the nature of warfare as existing kind of at a sub-state level. And this is important to think about because, one, it kind of helps us understand why their information warfare directed at the U.S. and in Europe it is manipulating political systems. But it also helps to crawl into kind of the headspace of Vladimir Putin, who, as a KGB officer, was raised in this kind of worldview and in this mentality, along with many other of of the current elites in in Russia right now. And so Putin coming to power, and even before he came to power, when he was the head of the FSB, he was really worried about democracy promotion and and Western NGOs. He considered that, if you think about this worldview, he sees these democracy promotion NGOs as manipulating Russian society at that below the state level, kind of in that same way that they view dialectical materialism and the nature of war being at, at that sub-state level. And so once he became president, 
if you look at kind of what's going on, you have the color revolutions that happen right away in, in Georgia and Ukraine. Once again, this worldview kind of kicks in and Putin is, a, is cynical and is a hardened KGB agent and views these revolutions not as like democratic uprisings, but as the manipulation of these societies from a sub-state level and, and essentially sees the color revolutions as being the result of Western information warfare, which is what he calls democracy promotion or how he thinks of democracy promotion. And there's all sorts of like generals at this time, General Kareem, uh, Mahmoud Kareem, and has written about this or talked about it, um, who was a very influential Russian general. There, there's, so there's lots of kind of literature about this. And it's this worldview kind of develops over time into the, the 2010s, where they really see democracy promotion as a form of information warfare waged by the West or the United States, kind of used interchangeably. And from there, you have the Arab Spring, which really heightens this fear of Western information warfare. And, and actually, the Russian government blames the United States and the West specifically for the Arab Spring and, and actually writes about how this was done explicitly by the West, intentionally by the West. And then right after that, you've got democratic protests break out inside Russia itself. So now Putin feels under threat. He feels his regime is being attacked by Western states using this color revolution weapon. And then right after that, you have the, the Euromaidan movement in Ukraine. And at that point, it's successful. A democratic uprising, a civil resistance movement overthrows a pro-Russian uh, leader and instead transitions the country to a more pro-Europe nation. And for Putin, this is the last straw. This is He sees this as the West has, has staged a coup. And he says in his speech in Crimea after this, the West has crossed the line. And from this point forward, he kind of he's in an information war with the West, a full-scale information war, they call it. And so that kind of gets us in the mind space to understand that already from the very beginning, from the Maidan movement, Putin believes that this is a Western coup, a fascist coup, he calls it. And from that point forward, is locked in this information war. And, and this government is illegitimate in Ukraine, and it's just a Western front, and it's a puppet state, and all this sorts of like nasty stuff. There's obviously information operations and sort of information warfare that I guess is happening at at least two different levels. One is this kind of intrastate, sub-state, I, I guess I would say between like the Kremlin and the people. And I think that's very well documented that there's an enormous amount of disinformation and info ops campaigns and things like that. And then there's the, I guess, separate information war that's underway, which is Russia vis-a-vis -vis the West. Is that a good way of thinking about the ways in which these dynamics are playing out? Or is there another level that we're not, that I'm not thinking of? No, that's, I think that's very astute. That's a, that's a very, it's a great way of looking at it. There's, it's almost like at a tactical and a strategic level, you can even take it one step further and, and talk about it at a kind of a grand strategic level, depending how you want to parse these terms. But I think that's exactly right. You have information operations to achieve specific goals. You also you have this broader worldview and this broader kind of belief system, what I like to think of at a grand strategic level, which is, you know, another term for this is the information confrontation, which is a clash of value systems, this clash of authoritarian systems with democracy. And that's why at a grand strategic level, what Putin is afraid of is democracy promotion because it undermines his regime. And he's made color revolutions enemy number one 
because he's afraid of having a color revolution waged against himself in Russia. And so from a big picture perspective, I think it's helpful to kind of just see these as big struggles between authoritarianism and, and democracy. And then at a, at a lower level, at a tactical level, we can see Putin waging information operations specifically in support of illiberal politicians or in Ukraine is a great example um, to overthrow a democratic regime that he believes is, is a soft power threat to his rule. So how does fighting a war in Ukraine help secure his authoritarian regime? It seems to me that there have already been oligarchs that have come out against this. There have been generals that have come out against this. He's now facing a bunch of protests at home. There are thousands of Russian soldiers coming back in body bags. Like, this does not look good. You know, I think one thing that's uh, worth throwing out there is there's always the potential for miscalculation. So. Many things that you, you mentioned um, certainly um, don't play well from an information standpoint and, and, and threaten Putin in many ways from an information standpoint, which is why I think sometimes this debate on Twitter or other places kind of talks about how this is irrational from Putin and he's gone crazy or things like that. But I, that's why I think it's important to understand his worldview, to understand why, despite the immense costs of this invasion, which he knew were going to happen. I mean, all these things were clearly signaled beforehand. He knew that there would be an immense cost. Why he decided to go through with it anyway. And I think that's where you have to really look at the extent to which he views color revolutions as a threat to his regime. And then from there, understand that, okay, so so Putin has said, so there's this whole worldview that he's, he's kind of articulated through, let's say through up until to the Maidan revolution or the revolution of dignity, at that point, you have what they call a fascist coup take over in, in Ukraine. They consider this part of kind of the color revolution weapon. And so he's, he's messaging to the Russian people that this is a horrible thing. I mean, my, my belief, that the reason that he used the, the term fascist rather than just a coup is because he wanted to make this a negative thing. He's trying to make color revolutions as unappealing as possible to the Russian people for obvious reasons. And so instead of kind of just saying, you know, this was a democratic revolution, you know, we, we don't like democracies or whatever, he, you know, instead of being honest, he, he used his disinformation tools and his state media and all sorts of fake news and all sorts of kind of the, the, all the litany of things that he's been using in these past few years to reinforce the, this narrative that he's presented that Ukraine was a, a fascist coup. And so, you know, for example, there's a story um, by the journalist Sam Sokol, who wrote an article in foreignpolicy.com about how Putin's state media did this big story, broadcast story, that Jews were fleeing Ukraine because of state-sponsored anti-Semitism and reinforcing this idea that there's a neo-Nazi in charge and that it's a, fasc- a fascist government. And then when he interviewed the people who actually fled, they were shocked. And they said, yeah, we were fleeing, we were fleeing Russian violence in Crimea. And so it just goes, it's just an example of how Putin's been trying to reinforce this narrative, or the state organs are reinforcing the narrative that Putin um, has presented. And I think that's important context for what's happening in Ukraine, because Putin's disinformation is information warfare is extremely powerful. 
but it's not more powerful than like the reality <laughs> in real life. And it was much easier for Putin to paint Syria uh, to control the narrative of what was happening in Syria because Syria is far away, but Ukraine is is right next door. There's a lot of family um, across borders. The Russian people call Ukraine a brother state. And, and so there's just, it's, there's much deeper ties between Ukraine and Russia. And so what ends up happening with Ukraine is it's all these stories, all this disinformation, it's all, it's all a lie. It's all untruths. Ukraine becomes pretty stable. It elects Zelensky in a free and fair election. He's an independent actor. He's very clearly an independent actor and not a puppet of any government. And beyond that, in, in 2021, Zelensky had uh, the, the largest GDP growth in Ukrainian history. He's trying to tackle corruption in Ukraine. He's doing all these things that many Russian people desperately want as well. And so as he's having success in doing this, think about Putin must be sitting there just horrified that you know he's got all these narratives out there that it's a puppet state for the West and it's a fascist government and the in chaos and Jewish people are fleeing neo-Nazi, you know, a regime from state-sponsored anti-Semitism. And instead, he's created a stable state. That is what presented this existential crisis to Putin's regime, is the success of Ukrainian democracy doing things that the Russian people desperately want as well, like tackling corruption, like creating a broader, a broader based prosperity. And for that reason, Putin had to essentially create the narrative that was in his own brain, that it create the chaos that he's argued exists in Ukraine. And that's why, it, you know, you get these weird narratives that, you know, when he, when he decided to invade, he, he said this was for denazification. You know, it all kind of fits into this narrative arc. So you've been studying the region for a long time. As events started to unfold over the last, I guess, couple of weeks, I'm curious, did you find yourself more on the spectrum of feeling really shocked at what was happening or did it feel inevitable? I feel like I'm hearing both sort of expectations from, from people who are particularly familiar with this part of the world. But at the risk of sounding too reductive, like on a scale of one to 10, like how inevitable is this? I'll give you a number, but then I'll give nuance. I would say like a seven, but I, I think there are kind of two ways that I, I thought about it. One is that I wasn't surprised only because I've been tracing these narratives and the way Putin had been framing this. It's so interesting because in, in the West, sometimes we talk about soft power as an afterthought. You know, soft power is like the nice to have thing that's at the end of the list. It's always and not really considered an important tool of power. Whereas when you read Russian literature, which we tend to think of as more Machiavellian and, and harder and things like that, they see soft power as one of the most powerful tools today. I mean, they, they talk about soft power as a weapon that can overthrow governments and, and is intentionally used to overthrow governments. One former Russian general talks about it as the modern day equivalent of missiles and large armies. And so knowing kind of how, how Russian, Russia's security elite view soft power, I always knew that there was going to be some problem with with Ukraine's independence. And, and especially if they were successful, it was just going to create more and more tension with the Russian government, with, with Putin's regime. However, I'll, I'll caveat that with saying, I did think that they would probably try to use other tools rather than like a 
World War II style industrial military like invasion. Um, I was definitely surprised that that was the direction that that Putin went in. And I think there were probably opportunities for negotiation or are not an invasion. And this is kind of a bit theoretical and, and other people would probably disagree with that. But I think Putin could have been happy with an iterative approach where Zelensky was forced to implement Minsk agreements, which many people argue would bring about a, a political crisis within Ukraine itself. And so that Putin could have triggered a political crisis to then try to manipulate and, and do it in a multiple steps rather than all at once. But I, but I think that so long as Ukraine has a, a free, prosperous, and thriving democracy, Putin's always going to see that as an existential risk. And, and that's a really scary thing. Last week, I wrote a piece on how the schism between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine has been one of those levers that Putin has been using to try to generate a pretext for invasion. You've also written about how his foreign policy is becoming more ideological around sort of this traditional values, quote unquote, peace. Can you talk more about how that has come into this conflict? Russia is certainly using the Orthodox Church in a lot of different ways. I think right now it's more in Serbia than in Ukraine just because of that schism. It shows you why that schism happened in the first place with, with Ukrainians feeling the need to, for independence from all the institutions of Russian control. The traditional values piece is really interesting just to kind of give background on, on, on that kind of concept. One thing that I've written about as well is that one of the ways Putin is trying to exert influence in the world is by cultivating individuals, all across, primarily in the West, but, but also um, outside of the West, using the promotion of traditional values. So we talked a lot about how Putin views and, and the Putin security regime views soft power as an extremely powerful tool today. And so they have gone out to try to acquire soft power. And what does that require? Well, that requires having an ideology, a state ideology. It requires promoting a, a specific value system, which then creates value-based attachment, which is soft power. One of the ways they've done it a couple different ways. They kind of threw a bunch of things at the wall. One, you know, they try to create a, it's called the Rusky Mirror. The Russian world is one uh, institution and, and kind of worldview that they've tried. But another uh, one is is the use of traditional values, which if you read some of Putin's statements, it's really kind of bizarre. He, he almost sounds like a right-wing troll when he speaks. And it's, it's, like, it's off-putting. You're like, where did that come from? You're not used to hearing world leaders um, sound like crap posters. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the other word. But the reason for that is he's promoting a specific value system, white nationalism, also homophobia, generally LGBTQ plus prejudice also misogyny in many ways. And he's promoting kind of these regressive, illiberal value systems as a way of kind of attracting the kind of disaffected, illiberal folks uh, across the West, which Putin is able to use then as, as instruments of power, um, not dissimilar to the way that the Soviet Union used communist movements across the West as, as tools. And this also extends to, to, to heads of state which includes folks like Viktor Orban. Um, I would also argue that I think Trump fits into like this kind of cultivation aspect rather than, I know there's some 
speculation that there's blackmail and other things involved in why uh, Trump loved Putin so much. I actually think it's like this values-based framework explains it more. But the thing that I find actually most interesting about that within the context of the Ukraine-Russia conflict um, or the Russian war on Ukraine, whatever we're calling it, is that soft power only goes so far. And so it's kind of been remarkable to see Orban join hands with, with the EU, you know, in support of, of sanctions. You know, I'm sure everyone saw clips from uh, that white nationalist conference over the weekend in the U.S. They were chanting Putin, of course, you know, so there's some enduring, <laughs> enduring uh, attachment uh, for some folks, but, but they've really lost a lot of that attachment that they built up over time by, by taking such blatantly aggressive action. And, and one thing I would also mention is I think this is important context for the, the Tucker Carlson piece as well. Why, why like this weird, why is Tucker Carlson have this weird pro-Russian bent to his show? And I think this is also explains that. But then again, you can almost see that narrative changing as the polls come out and show like some crazy 75% of the country is united and um, the U.S. is united against Russia's action in Ukraine. And even he's starting to just take this, you know, like uh, Ukraine is bad position rather than Putin is good. One way that Putin uses to push out this propaganda is state-backed media firms, RT and Sputnik specifically. Earlier today, the EU announced that they would both be banned. What impact do you think that will actually have for this information warfare? I'll be honest. I am totally of mixed feelings on this. I don't quite know what to think. On one hand, of course, it's great to get Russian media out of democratic states. On the other hand, there's a question of how effective it ever was. And on the flip side, what it does is it gives Putin an excuse to ban media from those states. We've already seen this. And I'm confident that we, we in, 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 the, in the U.S. And, and in Europe, where these bans are taking place, we have a pretty healthy ecosystem of, of information. and even though he has this weird troll, you know, bent to his his state media, it's not like there aren't trolls that are willing to promote those same narratives in different outlets. So I don't know that we're really losing or gaining anything by by those outlets being banned, or that Europe is. I guess it, it hasn't happened in the U.S. yet. But on the flip side, Russians don't have as healthy of an information ecosystem. So having these outlets banned in Russia, I think, is a, is a bigger deal. On one side, I'm, you know, it's it's great, but unfortunately, I think the consequences might actually do more damage within this broader context. What would you like to see the U.S. do offensively, in particular, when it comes to information warfare? You know, I think for the first time in a long time, the Biden administration got it totally right in the run-up to the, the conflict. And I think it serves as a great template to understand the best ways that we can do that. The reason I think it's so effective is because what we can do against a, a country like Russia, and to some degree, if this kind of information conflict spreads to places like China, is take advantage of these, the fact that these authoritarian systems cover up the truth. We in the U.S. have a million outlets that are willing to say any of these things that any propaganda outlet is, is going to say. But they don't have outlets willing to say the truth in many cases, although Russia has a bit more of an open media environment. But again, what Biden did that was so effective was 
they use their intelligence apparatus to get to acquire information about what Russia was doing and what's going to happen next, and then released it to the world. They were transparent. And that's truth, transparency, honesty, say what's happening. And it, it turned out to be correct. I certainly was surprised at how close this information was to, to being 100% accurate. And what it did is it totally threw off Putin, who was clearly planning to create some sort of false pretext or false flag operation. He was unable to, um, which, is, which is remarkable. We'll see what impact that ends up having on the conflict itself, but it's regardless a fairly remarkable strategic and, and really tactical use of information. And I, I think that's kind of um, a great example of, of how it can be used, how we can use the truth to undermine the lies that, that regimes are using, and how we can undermine the narratives that are created through false information or misleading information. During World War II, we created Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia, and we have all these media platforms. Do we need a new set of media platforms? Do we need new technologies to help break into these ecosystems? Specifically, I'm thinking of China, which is so closed, right? Russia at least has some flexibility, but China is just such a closed box. Do we just need to find ways to break the great firewall so that we can get the truth in there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the biggest question facing the U.S. within the context of, of this broader information war moving forward. I think some of that is correct, as you just said, especially in moments of emergencies or um, I think, for example, what's happening right now in Russia, where it's becoming more closed off because Putin's feeling afraid, he's feeling the walls closing in a little bit. If we could develop a technology or it doesn't even have to be super effective. I mean, we saw um, the ability to uh, have the Internet just available to, to people through satellites. And, you know, in the past, there's been leaf, leaflet droppings and things like that. So, you know, this, has been, this is an old problem. How do you kind of get information to people in closed spaces when you're, you're in the middle of a conflict with them? So I think that's right. I think we do need to, to think about how best to deliver that information and, and get it to people. There's a great story um, during the Cold War of the U.S. using hot air balloons to drop uh, magazines into Soviet-controlled Germany. Again, looking at what Biden just did creates kind of a template, which is it's not so much the delivery, although that's somewhat important, it's the having a concerted effort. I mean, this was the first time that I've seen recently that any that the U.S. government has had a concerted effort to promote a specific narrative within the context of achieving a strategic goal. And doing that by releasing information that was relevant, that people found kind of interesting or fascinating. One way that I think that they could do this is by making it a little sexier, although that might like diminish it a little bit. But, you know, for example, when, you know, some of these Russian oligarchs or some of these officials have mistresses aside from their families living in, in Western countries. And so when they're threatening sanctions, if they said something like, you know, this will also affect your mistresses, you know, it's, it's something that's shocking. And even though it kind of diminishes kind of just the fact-based release of information, what it does is it creates something titillating that makes people inside Russia be like, 
oh my God, did they say that and spread it faster and make it go viral. And so we can use, I think, things like that to make information more exciting. And then I think once you've done that, you know, as good as China is at censoring their information, if there's something that's, that's, that people want to see, they usually, you know, especially young people who, who know how to use the internet, they'll find a way to get that information. So even though, you know, I do think the delivery systems are important and, and can be useful at a tactical level, I really think it's more about this concerted effort in finding ways and information that is itself relevant and that people want, then they'll find a way to actually get that. You mentioned sanctions, and that's obviously been one of the main, you know, sort of levers of influence that, that has taken center stage when it comes to, you know, what the U.S. can be doing. How effective do you think sanctions are at this point in deterring Russia and deterring Putin personally? It feels to me like maybe it's, it's not possible using some of these economic forms of pressure to, to have a meaningful outcome. You're right. I think this was kind of a big test case. We threatened a pretty severe sanctions in the hope that it would deter Putin from taking this action. And it clearly didn't deter him. He took the action anyways. And so now what we're going to find out is whether sanctions can be used for compellence rather than deterrence. You know, and I think that kind of sets the stage to talk a little bit about what happens next, which is going to be economic devastation to some degree. I mean, certainly crisis or, or whatever we want to call it. We'll see how hard the rubble gets hit. But it, it certainly this weekend, it seems like it's going to be bad. And we've, I'm sure we've all seen the lines of people at banks trying to take out money and convert their money to dollars. And so fast forwarding to where kind of the narrative is now. So Putin reinforcing this narrative that he's been promoting, that he's going to denazify Ukraine and, you know, talking about, you know, the genocide that's happening from these Nazis essentially in these separatist regions. And that he's going to go in and stop genocide. And so they've, they've, really been calling this a, a limited mission. And if you look in Russian media, they, they've really downplayed what's going on. Of course, we've all seen that they're not allowed to use the word war for what's going on. But what something like sanctions will do is, you know, you can't hide that. You, you know, you can't hide the impact of that. So, you know, Putin saying, well, the, the West was planning to do this anyways. This has nothing to do with Ukraine. And, and I should add that obviously there's non-Western countries like Japan as well, uh, joining the sanctions. And so he said, they're planning to do this anyways. This is, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, we're doing this limited whatever it is in, in Ukraine. But people know what's going on and they see the impact it has on their wallet. And, you know, again, I think it gets back to the fact that Putin had a sense that this would happen and he decided to make the decision anyways. And we'll see what happens. It's, it's crazy because I think this is the reason I was like most skeptical about this is Putin and the old guard KGB folks that are kind of running Russia right now, they viewed the collapse of the Soviet Union as as much a economic crisis, political crisis. That's fresh in their memory that it was an economic crisis that triggered state collapse. And so as Russia enters an economic crisis, that seems like it's going to be the big question for, for what happens next is what is the impact of this economic crisis inside Russia and whether or not these sanctions can be used to compel a policy change from Putin. 
one of the interesting things or one of the interesting arguments I've read recently is that Putin is shifting his nuclear posture in response to these sanctions, not because the West is really getting all that involved in the conflict, although there's some movement on that today. I think it just shows how devastating these could be in the future. But before we go, I wanted to see how you would prioritize information warfare as opposed to our other tools of power. Because as you've you've mentioned a few times, on the ground facts matter a whole lot, and they can really change the information landscape more than Sputnik or RT or, you know, bad memes on Facebook. So like, how much should the US be thinking about this and prioritizing this over other levers? To me, it's the question, I, I think, because I, as I mentioned kind of at the outset, I think we're in the middle of a paradigm shift where information tools are becoming increasingly important, even more so than like the military, where we're investing hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And it, it may be the case that information tools of which we invest very little money are actually more effective in some ways, although Russia's invasion of Ukraine certainly makes a case for, for the utility of, of hard power. But I, I do. I think that we need to be thinking forward and thinking about how to use information in a more creative way. I think one of the things that I hope that I, I want to write about and, and hope to research on in the future is that I think what Russia has hit on that's correct, what Russian security officials have hit on, is the rising utility of, of soft power. And this is something that Professor Jonai has talked about that in the information age, soft power increases in, in its usefulness and in its impact. And I, I think that's something that's really underappreciated. We need to figure out how do we effectively promote the United States? How do we effectively promote the brand of the United States? And to me, there's no better way to promote the brand of the United States than, than just to do good things in the world, to be a positive influence. We already do such impactful work through USAID. Like we need to really, uh, I think, emphasize promoting that, that work, emphasizing that we're, we're changing people's lives for the better by giving out tons of aid every year and have been. So I think it's a combination of one of the common thoughts that people have been uh, saying on Twitter is that the war in Ukraine shows that information war isn't really that effective. Well, Putin spent all this time investing in information war, and he lost the narrative in a day. But I think that's a, the wrong way to look at it. He was lying, and that's why he lost. And he got called out with facts, and that's why he lost. And so the best thing that I think we can do to invest in information tools and promote a positive view of the United States is to do good things, to, to do things that are factually good for people, to reduce poverty in the world. I mean, imagine what a campaign that reduces global poverty, and then we can say, hey, we're doing a campaign that reduces global poverty. And then that improves people's perception of the United States. So to me, first and foremost, we should think about how it's in our national interests, as much as military tools, to be investing in things that change people's lives for the better. On that uplifting note, let's move to our final segment of the show where we talk about something we're following this week. Uh, I'll kick us off. This week, I'm following the response of China and India to the war in Ukraine. 
China and Russia have been strengthening their relationship. And while the rhetoric of Putin is playing well on Chinese social media, it's really wrong-footing China's government. They've been trying for years to position themselves as a voice for quote-unquote state sovereignty. So it's really hard when one of your partners is invading another state and destroying their sovereignty. However, China recently opened their country to Russian wheat, which could be a vital lifeline as Western sanctions start to bite. India, for its part, has failed to call the war an invasion and is the only member of the Quad to not impose sanctions on Russia. India gets a majority of its high-tech military gear from Russia, which could be another way Russia can attempt to prop up its economy. The West is slowly losing its death grip on the global economy, and that will mean that a lot of the efficacy of our sanctions is also disappearing. So we really need to focus on how we can get India on side and how we can potentially split China and Russia moving forward. Ben, what are you following this week? I think most of my energy has been sucked up following um, this conflict. And I wanted to also reiterate just kind of the, the humanitarian impact of all this and, and how that's by far the most important thing and, and the thing that we're all concerned about the most. And just hope that Ukrainian people stay safe. In, in the face of this this invasion, in non-Ukraine related media, can be also depressing and in an entirely different way. Is is the the Euphoria finale tonight, which I have been looking forward to. Zoe, bring us home. What are you following this week? I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the historic news that broke on Friday that President Biden had nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And if she is confirmed, she will be the first Black woman to serve as a justice, which is amazing. She's had this really incredible storied career. But one fact about her that came to my attention recently and that I think most people don't know is that Judge Jackson is also a big fan of Survivor. And as some dedicated uh, listeners of this show might recall, I am one of the few people out there that still watches Survivor. So I was very excited to hear uh, that I'm in good company. And maybe it says something about both the quality of the show and the people who watch it. Well, I look forward to your nomination to the Supreme Court. (laughs) I don't know. The real question is, is she going to use any like Survivor tactical knowledge, you know, to convince other justices to vote her direction? We'll find out. So with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Ben at Ben underscore Soul. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the brave men and women fighting for their freedom in Ukraine. Stay safe and glory to Ukraine. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.